Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutil, and I'm talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. I like reading all sorts of history. Canadian history, of course, but histories on a wide range of topics. I like big, sprawling books that are filled with people and events and analysis. I also like narrowly focused books on particular experiences, particular events, or people. But I especially like books that discover things, quite literally those books that bring to light something long buried. My guest today is Jennifer Tunnicliffe, formerly a fellow at the Wilson Institute of Canadian History at McMaster University, and now an assistant professor of history at King's College at Western University. She's just published a book that hit me like a two-by-four to the forehead, titled Resisting Rights, Canada and the International Bill of Rights, 1947 to 1976. It is published by the University of British Columbia Press as part of its superb Law and Society series. We reached her at her office in London, Ontario. Professor Tunnicliffe, welcome to the mic. Oh, thanks very much for having me. You've written a book that takes dead aim at one of the conceits of Canada, namely that this country has always been in the vanguard of defending human rights at the United Nations. How did you get started on this topic? Well, I've always been interested in issues of social justice and human rights. And in my work on Canada, in my undergrad, and my MA, I was interested in questions of Canadian identity and became well aware, as most of us are, that as Canadians, we see support for human rights as very central to our national identity, support for human rights at home and abroad. We're often known for being a country that supports human rights. And so during my MA studies, when I learned that Canada had initially opposed the United Nations' first attempts to create international documents to protect rights and freedoms around the world, I was shocked, as most people are when I discuss my work. And so I wanted to know why. Why did Canada oppose the development of international standards for human rights in the 1940s? Was this an anomaly? And what I learned surprised me further, that rather than having a history of support for international human rights, Canada actually resisted the development of human rights documents at the UN throughout quite a bit of the post-war period. And this led me to my study to ask why this was. It really flies in the face of what we know about our country, doesn't it? It absolutely does. Yeah, we're taught, whether it's you know at school or whether it's in the way we commemorate Human Rights Day, we're taught that Canada is and has been a long-time and consistent supporter of international human now, I rights. Can't, I can't resist bringing this up. And that's, you know, and I'm, and I'm a huge admirer of the Heritage Minutes. Yeah. But we have a Heritage Minute on John Peters Humphrey. We do. You talk a little bit about Humphrey, and boy, um, that Heritage Minute needs amending, doesn't it? <laughs> Can you tell us a bit more about John Peters Humphrey? Certainly, yeah. He was a Canadian lawyer. He taught law actually at McGill University, and he was a human rights activist from the 1940s through to his death in the 1990s. And he advocated in Canada and internationally for greater protection of rights and freedoms at a time when the concept of human rights was very new to people. And he's important to the story I tell because after the Second World War, he became the first director of the United Nations Division of Human Rights. He worked for the UN Secretariat, and he did so until the mid-1960s. And in that position, he sat on the newly created UN Commission on Human Rights, and he worked with people like Eleanor Roosevelt, and it's in this position that he actually is responsible for writing the first draft of what is a very important human rights document, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And and that's what the Heritage Minute is about, but but it misses quite a bit of the story. (laughs) But he did not represent the government of Canada. He didn't. He worked for the UN Secretariat. And in fact, 
He didn't know what Canadian policy would be. He had no influence over it, although he did at times consult with the government. And he was as surprised as everyone else when Canada refused to support the UDHR. Okay, let's talk about the UDHR, this Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Can you remind us of what this was about? So uh, the UDHR is a human rights instrument that was adopted by the UN in 1948. It's the first part of what's called the International Bill of Rights, and it consists of 30 articles that list the fundamental rights and freedoms that we all share by virtue of being human. So this would include the right to life, liberty, security of the person, freedom from torture, equality before the law, you know, and many of the other freedoms that we are today very familiar with, but that weren't often explicitly protected by countries in the 1940s. And so this was an instrument that member states of the United Nations Um, came together and agreed upon. It's a declaration, which means that it's not legally binding. It's an aspirational document, meaning that countries would strive to sort of meet uh, these human rights goals. It sounds perfectly consistent with Canadian policy. We'd fought the Second World War. We lost tremendous numbers of soldiers and treasure. We were at the founding of the United Nations. Why would we oppose something like this? Why would the government of Canada oppose something like this? It's a very good question. Believe it or not, in the 1940s, Canada didn't have a legal tradition of protecting rights and freedoms in law at home. At the time that the UDHR was being developed at the UN, Canada had virtually no legislation that explicitly prohibited discrimination based on factors such as race, mm-hmm. sex, religion, ethnicity. Instead, we, we, we were discriminating a, against everybody. I mean, there's a whole bunch of people who are being discriminated in this country. Well, that's right. We have actually a very long tradition yes. in Canada of discrimination. <laughs> I mean, our immigration policies, sure. our voting laws, our treatment of Indigenous peoples and other... The treatment of the Japanese during the Second yeah, World War. Yeah, other racialized and religious minorities. Mm-hmm. We had property laws that restricted who could live in certain neighborhoods. We even had segregated education right. in some areas of Canada in this time period. And so the Universal Declaration of Human Rights articulated a kind of of human rights that was far more expansive than any rights and freedoms experienced in Canada. And so for that reason alone, there was very little support. But more importantly, federal policymakers knew that a lot of laws in Canada, immigration laws in particular, would actually be in violation of the UDHR. And they weren't interested in having the UN or other member states interfere in Canadian domestic policy. They saw this as a threat to Canadian policy. And they often told people at the United Nations that Canada had no problem with their minority groups, they had no problems with discrimination, and they didn't see a reason for an international document protecting human rights. So we're talking about the first draft written by Humphrey, we're talking about, so we're 1946, 1947? It's drafted in 47 and then debated in 48, and the final votes are in December uh, of 1948. That's why we have Human Rights Day on December 10th, actually. It was December 10th, 1948. Now, you need to name names. Who was opposed to this? (laughs) Well, it's interesting because, you know, um, uh, our prime minister at the time was uh, Mackenzie King. Louis St. Laurent became the prime minister uh, as uh, King. Yeah, as King retired. Yep. Yep. And um, and the head of external affairs in this time period was actually Lester Pearson, yes, <laughs> uh, our beloved prime minister from a uh, from a later period, Nobel and, Prize winner um, Lester Pearson. <laughs> yes, and he was the man on the ground in Paris uh, for the delegation uh, Canada during the time that the uh, UDHR was being debated. Um, he didn't support the idea of international bills of rights. He supported other things. He supported sort of 
you know, other kinds of policies. But these kinds of politicians, major politicians that we that we sort of recognize as being key to our foreign policy in this time period, uh, they didn't they didn't support the idea of the UDHR. So the bureaucracies lined up against it. Absolutely. And the Department of External Affairs in this time period that's responsible for foreign policy, they are very uh, determinedly against it. And they're making most of the decisions at this time period because cabinet really isn't interested. And as we know from you know reading Jack Granstein's Ottawa Men, I mean, this is a very uniform group, white Anglo-Saxon uh, men of a certain age, had a certain Absolutely. view of, of life. Now, reading your book, uh, there were still in Canada people who did champion the idea of uh, human rights, of a universal, of Canada supporting the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Who are those people? So we did have a few people in Parliament. So probably the the most well-known would be John Diefenbaker. Mm -hmm. Uh, John Diefenbaker was a Conservative MP. He would obviously later become Prime Minister and pass Canada's first Bill of Rights. He was... Not so much, you know, adamantly supportive of an international uh, Bill of Rights, but he definitely questioned the government. He asked what they were doing, uh, how they were looking over the draft. He was at least very supportive of Canada engaging with this, so he would definitely be one. There were some uh, members of the CCF party, but, you know, really very few. Diefenbaker was the most vocal in Parliament. And then in terms of rights activists, John Humphrey although he was working at the United Nations, would come to Canada. He tried very hard, actually, in 47 and 48. He toured Canada to try to get some support in Canada. But even rights activists in this time period, I interviewed some. Really? And they admitted <laughs> that, you know, international um, human rights just really were not their priority at this time period. They were much more focused. We didn't really have domestic laws protecting rights and freedoms. So they were much more focused on domestic laws. And so, you know, Really, John Humphrey, John Diefenbaker, other than that, we you didn't have very many voices okay. uh, speaking in support of this. Okay, but in the end, we have to recognize that Canada did sign yes. on to the United Nations Declaration in 1948. We did sign on. What convinced the government to do it? Well, in the votes leading up to the final vote, so on December 6th of 1948, there was a vote in the General Assembly and Canada refused to support the document. And this shocked many of Canada's allies. The United States and Britain were big supporters of this document. And Canada found itself in the, in the uncomfortable company of Saudi Arabia, South Africa, the Soviet bloc, as the only countries really who didn't support this document. Unbelievable. And yeah, there's a, an interesting telegram from Pearson that goes to cabinet almost immediately after that says, you know, we, we need to do something about this. This looks very bad. And so at the last minute, because of this international pressure, we do vote in support of the document. But interestingly, Lester Pearson gets up in the General Assembly after the vote and gives a speech about Canada's reservations to the document. So we support it, but here's all the, you know, issues we have with it. We sort of support it if necessary, but we don't necessarily yes. support it. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good way of putting it. Now, it's not like Canada improves after that. Your book talks about how we had similar reservations about the International Covenants on Human Rights. Can you tell yeah, us about that? Absolutely. So the Declaration is an, a non-legally binding document, but the next set of documents in the International Bill of Rights are covenants, covenants on, on human rights, and they are legally binding to states that become party to them. And so Canada had even more reservations about these documents. The covenants were a sort of clearer articulation of 
the articles that were laid out in the UDHR. And so we now today have the International Covenant on um, Civil and Political Rights and the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. And those took a lot longer for the UN uh, to pass because they were so contentious, because they were legally binding. So from 1949 to 1966, those were debated. Yeah. Yeah, they took a long time. This is, you know, the onset of the Cold War, the really divisive ideological uh, sort of propaganda fights at the United Nations. And Canada, especially within the Department of External Affairs, very, very opposed to the covenant. So in the 1950s, we actually see Canada's greatest resistance to international human rights. And and what the Canadian politicians are hoping, when I see the memos that go around in this time period, is that, you know, all the controversy of the Cold War and you know, anti-colonial politics will basically cause these to just go away. But by the mid-1960s, it becomes clear that uh, there, with the growing United Nations, there is growing support for these documents and they are going to pass. So there's a lot of debate internally in the mm-hmm. uh, in the bureaucracy. We're going through the Diefenbaker years. We're going through the um, Pearson years. Yes. Eventually, there is an erosion to the resistance. Canada will sign on the uh, International Covenants in 1976? In 1966, they come up for vote at the United Nations. Right. And actually, Canada, um, without intense international pressure, Canada does vote to support them in 1966. Okay. And, and then countries who vote to support them then have to go back and ratify them. So they have to take them to their home legislatures or governments and get them passed, and then you become a party to it. And it, it took Canada another 10 years, another 10 uh, years. to do that. Now, um, okay, so, so we were slow. So in 1966, of course, it's Mr. Pearson, who's prime mm-hmm. minister. Has he had a change of mind? What's what, what, How do you explain that in 1966, we finally, we finally do sign on to the International Covenants on Human Rights? So I would argue that it's not the government that so much has a change of heart. It's that the government realizes that the environment in which they're talking about these documents has changed, both the environment internationally and in particularly the environment at home. So from the mid-1940s to the 1960s, we have a fundamental change in Canadian society around rights and freedoms. It's a quiet uh, revolution, have, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's... Things are changing. We have in the 1950s the adoption all throughout the provinces and federally of anti-discrimination laws, fair practices laws around employment, accommodation and services. And then in the 1960s, we have a whole wave of human rights codes that get put in place, including our own National Bill of Rights. And rights activism and the human rights movement in Canada really grows in this time period so that by the mid-1960s, there actually is a fair support at home and activism around Canada signing these documents. And so the federal policymakers begin to become concerned about what might happen at home if they don't sign them. And then this is sort of accompanied with the growth at the United Nations of the membership to include former colonial states in Africa and Asia. And they're very supportive of the document. So the government realizes on one hand, these documents are going to be passed at the United Nations. At home, there's a lot of support for human rights. What's going to happen if the government doesn't support these documents? So I would argue that most of the change change comes through domestic activism and through changes at the UN. And the government feels the pressure of that and so changes its policy as a result. And of course, Mr. Pearson uh, is in a minority situation. He's got Diefenbaker breathing down his neck. Does yes. that make does that play a role? Well, it's interesting. 
interesting, you know, John Diefenbaker, for all that he pressured the Liberal government when he was an opposition member to look into the UDHR, Mm -hmm. when he himself became prime minister, he continued the same policies of the Liberal Party. We don't I don't see any major changes in the approach to the covenants under Diefenbaker, actually. Um, And so it's, it's not so much that the Pearson government is feeling the pressure from within its government or from its opposition parties, I would argue they're feeling it much more from civil society, from, you know, voluntary organizations, from human rights activists, from minority groups who are all beginning to sort of recognize these documents as, you know, essential. And I presume that uh, in 1966, as we had been in 1948, did we, was Canada subject to some pressures from the international community? Were our allies uh, supporting this, uh, this covenant? So that's an interesting story as well, because the United States, which had Eleanor Roosevelt as their main representative in 1948 and actually was key in sort of spearheading the drafting of the declaration by the 1950s, again, with the onset of the Cold War, uh, with the recognition that the covenants were legally binding documents and concerns over sovereignty. By the 1950s, the United Nations had done basically an about face and had stood up at the United Nations and said, while they supported the you know, ongoing efforts to draft the covenants, that they would not be ratifying them. They actually were very open about that. Um, and Britain, which also had been very supportive in the 1940s, was subject to a lot of criticism in the 1950s and 60s from its former colonies for its policies. And so Britain had become sort of quite wary of these, as had Australia and several other of Canada's allies. I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that um, they begin to realize that, you know, for countries around the world, Latin America, Asia, Africa, human rights are a tool that can be used for greater equality, not just in terms of domestic policy, but, you know, internationally. And so Canada didn't experience the same pressure from its allies, but they did experience pressure from these newly independent states. Canada wanted to not just have its relationship with Britain and with the United States, but it wanted to have a a relationship with countries in Africa and around the world. And so they were being openly criticized at the UN by these uh, smaller states. And so that pressure didn't just affect Canada, it it affected uh, countries like Britain as well that did support it in the end. And as you say, in the end, in in 1976, uh, the Trudeau government finally uh, makes it official and uh, Canada is an official signatory and committed to implementing, I presume, the the covenants? Well, yeah, I mean, there's there's some question with that um, Mm -hmm. in terms of um, the gap that exists between you know sure. decisions to support something or even ratify it versus implementing it. I would say that you know by the nineteen by nineteen seventy six Canada has developed its own fairly strong infrastructure around human rights. I mean our immigration policies have changed and stuff, so it's much easier for Canada to sign on to them because it we're not violating them in the same ways we had been in the nineteen forties. You mentioned through your book that this is a case study of how international pressures exercise themselves on the national government, that we are, in a way, yielding a little bit of sovereignty. We're saying, yes, we will we will abide by international standards. We'll, we will abide by international pressures to recognize and implement the protections of human rights. That this is new. I mean, that law is not simply the product of domestic pressures, but there's also, I mean, and you're saying, of course, they were very important, but there's also an international influence, isn't there? 
Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, in the 1940s, this is what the Canadian government feared. Yes. Uh, it's what many of the uh, new, like when the United Nations was created, it's what many states feared, is that uh, this would be creating a new body that would have influence over domestic policy. And um, they turned and out the to be reality right. is it has. Yeah, they, yeah, they turned out to be right. <laughs> they did. And I mean, the, the UDHR, for all that it's not a legally binding document, I mean, many scholars will admit that it has far-reaching powers. It, the moral suasion that's attached to a document like the UDHR is powerful. And that's the way the UN works. That's how it sort of exerts yes. itself. And so you're right. Absolutely. Um, this is a, a period in which you begin to see how the international community can pressure domestic policy. Now, reading your book, of course, it's very topical in the sense that mm. uh, a lot of people in this country are very frustrated with the, the government's reluctance to join and support the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, otherwise known as UNDRIP. Yes. Um, UNDRIP was drafted in <laughs> 2007. Do you see a parallel between Canada's dance around UNDRIP? Sometimes we have ministers who say, well, we're sort of we're sort of supporting it, and other people say, well, no, we're not supporting it, and the prime minister says, well, we kind of like it, and others say, no, we don't really like it. Do you see a parallel between Canada wrestling with UNDRIP and the way Canada wrestled with the uh, Human Rights Declaration in 1946-47? Absolutely. I think that one of the sort of messages I'd like to get through in my book is the fact that, you know, this idea that Canada's resistance or reluctance to engage with uh, UNDRIP uh, is something that is new, that's out of step with Canada's other policies. And in fact, we have a long tradition. So if you look at, you know, the documents or the process to, to pass a declaration on the rights of Indigenous peoples, you can see that in the late 70s and early 80s, when this idea was new, the Canadian government openly resisted it. It worked to sort of sideline issues of Indigenous rights at the United Nations. And then when you look into the period as this document gains momentum, and you look into uh, the period in which the Harper government uh, not only actually chose not to support it, but opposed, was one of only four states. Well, Canada, and that's important, the, right? Yeah, Canada, the United States, New Zealand, and Australia yes. uh, opposed this document. And uh, and they did so for a number of reasons, but the, the sort of official reason that they gave uh, related a lot to sort of federal jurisdiction, which is what our government tends to use uh, when it wants a, a reason to excuse not supporting something is that, you know, we have a federal system and there's jurisdictional issues between the provinces and the federal government and that the federal government can't agree to treaties that might interfere with that. I mean, this is the same excuse they gave when it came to the covenants. And so when Stephen Harper opposed this document, then we see huge opposition from around the world, but also from within Canada. And so the Harper government does eventually cave into that pressure and they do support the government, but they support the government by standing up and giving official reservations, much in the same way that Pearson did in 1948. New I bottles, old wine. Extreme parallels, yeah. yeah. And I mean, that's that's I think a part of the reason I'm interested in this topic is that while this idea was coming in my head. It was a period in which the Harper government was in power. The Harper government was sort of openly disdainful of sort of the international human rights system. And people, including sort of groups like Amnesty International, were all talking about how Harper was eroding Canada's traditional reputation as a human rights leader. Yes. And the reality is, not to take away 
what the Harper government was doing and how wrong that is. But we actually don't have this long history uh, of support. And that, in fact, in some ways, the Harper government was very consistent. That's not to say that Canada hasn't been supportive at times. Sure. But our, our record is very, very mixed. And the Trudeau government has, again, promised support, but has actually not done it. Yeah. And I mean, this comes back to this question about the rhetoric and, and signing on to things versus implementation and the gap that exists sometimes between what you say you will do and how you present yourself and what you actually do. And, and I would argue that the reason that gap exists is because, again, we have a long tradition of not wanting to submit ourselves to these standards. And, and so, but at the same time, we want to be in, seen as a country that supports human right. rights. So let me ask you as a historian to predict the future. Do you think that eventually we will sign the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples? Well, the, <laughs> the Harper government did actually, after their initial opposition, yes. they, did, uh, they did come out and support it. Yes. And so I do think that the, uh, the, the Canadian government um, definitely, uh, you know, supports that document in a way that it didn't previously. The extent to which, though, it's a declaration, so it's not sure. legally binding. If there was a covenant on the rights of Indigenous peoples, I believe that the Canadian government would be very resistant to that. Thank you again for this insightful book, Jennifer Tunnicliffe. Oh, thank you very much nice for talking speaking to with me about it. Nice thank you very to much. Nice talking to you too. Bye-bye. Have a nice day. Bye-bye. That was Jennifer Tunnicliffe, Assistant Professor of History at King's College at Western University and the author of Resisting Rights, Canada and the International Bill of Rights, 1947 to 1976. It's published by the University of British Columbia Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the Society does, including its publications, its blogs, and more about these podcasts. There's even a place to become a member and sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's history. If you like this stuff, please let people know by using whatever social media you use. It would help spread the message, and we'd be really proud of such support. This podcast was made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. My name is Patrice Dutille. This interview was recorded in the Alan Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University on April 16, 2019, and it was produced by Hugh Backhurst. Thank you, everybody, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>